Hello, and welcome to A View from the Perch, a podcast covering important financial topics from the perspective of a financial advisor and an experienced certified financial planner. Each week, we give a brief market update, discuss current economic events, analyze and debate highlighted stocks, and provide education on a financial subject. Now, here are your hosts, Bill Parrott and Spencer Engelkev. All right, Bill, new week, same question. How are the markets? Yeah, well, uh, not too bad over the last week or so. Uh, the Dow, our, the S&P 500 up 1.5%. Uh, international markets, which we're talking about today, <coughs> up one8 Bonds are soaring again. Mm. Uh, long-term bonds are up uh, nearly 4%. Wow. Uh, and small caps are taking the brunt of it. They're down about a percent. 0.86%. Okay. So again, a diversified portfolio <laughs> would, would be up on the week. <laughs> yeah. And I guess really the, it's called a tail or headwind, whatever you want to do is, is this jobless report coming up on Friday. There's a lot of speculations. Docs seem to be a little skittish because they're saying, oh, is it going to be a soft landing, hard landing? And people are really kind of split on that. So kind of what, what are you envisioning the equities market's going to do here in the next up and coming weeks with the jobs report on Friday and then inflation on Tuesday. I, I think it doesn't care. Um, it'll move the market, obviously, one way or another. Mm-hmm. But again, all eyes are still on the Fed. Yeah. And um, but if we get. So this got to flip it. A, a good report is bad. <laughs> Which means the Fed probably will not raise rates. Yeah, a bad report is good for the Fed, and they'll probably raise rates. Mm-hmm. So if the data comes in hot, better than expected, that gives more ammunition for the Fed. Yeah. If the data comes in weak or worse than expected, uh, the market will like that, and um, the Fed will hopefully not raise rates anymore. The and this is where I'm kind of getting frustrated because the market has been telling us for the past year, we want some negative reports in order for the Fed to start cooling. As soon as we get some rumblings of, oh, job claims, this is getting up. They're like, hard landing, sell, market's down. So it's kind yeah. of like a lose-lose situation in this Absolutely. environment. And you see his bonds soaring. That's an indicator of a recession. So a lot of people pricing in, hey, we're going to have this. Yeah. And not a soft landing. Yes. Yeah, so. And and there's never been a soft yeah. landing. Never. <laughs> uh, so the bond market's telling you that rates are going lower. Yeah. Uh, a recession's probably coming. Uh, the 10 year dropped below 3.3% yeah. uh, today. Uh, that's a little, and it was, it was over 5% uh, just a few weeks ago. Exactly. Um, and, uh, right prior to the Silicon Bank collapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, that rates down significantly. So the, the bond market is telling us, hey, a recession is coming. And it's interesting because New Zealand yesterday raised interest rates a half a percent. That was huge. Yeah, that surprised a lot of people. Uh, so we have uh, countries that are not aligned either. Yeah. Um, some are cutting, some are pausing, some are raising, uh, you know, and Globally, these are some of the smartest people on the planet, and no one knows. <laughs> hey, we'll raise, point. we'll lower, <laughs> we'll pause. 
uh, you know, trying to fight inflation, you know, it's an invisible boogeyman is tough. Uh, but here in the U.S., if if the data continues to come in weaker, the Fed should should pause. Pause. Yeah, uh, probably anticipate still a 25 basis point hike the next time and then hopefully a pause. But hopefully um, we, we shall see about that. Um, OK, so kind of as we're forward looking into the markets and into all these claims, and what the Fed are going to do, I guess, still holding pattern, diversified portfolio. Can you mention the beginning of the show and just kind of. Yeah, hold. I mean, it's impossible to predict what's going to happen. You know, prior to the bank collapse, everybody thought rates were going to the moon. Mm. A few weeks later, rates are going through the floor uh, and it changed the landscape dramatically. Yeah. So prior to the bank collapse, Silicon Valley bank collapse, people were convinced the Fed was going to continue to tighten. They were going to continue to hammer rates. Now it's like, okay, hmm. the bank collapsed, rates are coming down, things aren't looking great, and uh, the Fed sh- should pause here. So you just don't know. Yeah, that's fair. You don't know. Well, I mean, holding patterns better than a falling pattern. So yeah. <laughs> thank you. And, and you know, right now, year to date, quarter to date, uh, markets are rocking. Yeah, you know, we're, we're off to a great start for 2023 uh, across the board, really. Uh, bonds and international investments are outperforming our stocks year to date, U.S. stocks. Um, and, you know, if, if we continue on this pace, it's going to be a phenomenal year. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, sold out last year because the stock market was down and rates were going higher. And, and here we have a robust year so far. So if you sold last year, you're missing out on good returns this year. You, mm-hmm. just, you just never know. Yeah, and you would never know unless you look at the numbers because all of the talking heads you would have never assumed so. Oh, we're having a robust return year (laughs) (laughs) with all the doom and gloom that's going on. So and everything's backward looking, right? Like, oh yes, it was obvious to buy there or (laughs) sell there, or yes, we should have been here. Uh, Not not so much. Not it's not easy to do, and and you know it's it's a waste of time and 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 burns a lot of energy. I mean. Good luck to that person who could time the market and, and uh, you know, how many hours do they spend trying to figure it out? And I don't know. Yeah. It just uh, I'd rather own a diversified portfolio and live my life. Yeah, we, we talked about that last week. Timing market, extremely difficult. There's always a reason to sell. And uh, so we'll transition to our um, empowering education for this week. And it is, as we talked about, international stocks and before we really get into the numbers of it there's a couple things i think we need to highlight about international stocks and first is international developed stocks versus kind of these emerging market stocks versus like a global portfolio let's really parse these out and explain them in um in detail so international developed stocks is what we hear a lot about what what is that so those are your major markets uh the EU, you know, Germany, France, England, uh, and then you have Australia, New Zealand, Japan. Uh, China goes back and forth between developed and emerging markets, but they're probably more developed, yeah. even though their government's not. Uh, so really established companies that have Western values for mm-hmm. the most part, um, I would consider developed 
Okay. You know, the rule of law, okay. uh, they've been around obviously for a long time and, uh, <laughs> um, you know, they have established companies okay. there. So, so that's what we usually mean by developed okay. countries. And the other side, emerging market, mm-hmm. still an international stock, but what, what, what does that mean? Yeah. So those are what people refer to as the BRICS, okay. uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, uh, where they're emerging. So they're growing up, they're teenagers, they're, uh, they're trying to get on the main stage financially. Uh, a lot of those countries are uh, what I would call um, energy efficient, meaning okay. they have a lot of uh, natural materials, um, you know, oil, uh, commodity type stuff, things like that. Uh, but they're still not developed in terms of like, you know, total rule of law, uh, pro-business. Uh, their countries are, or companies are trying to make it on the main stage, things like that. And then we, we won't really talk about it, but then there's another term, frontier markets. Yeah. Or maybe you're going to bring that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Africa. You know, Africa is considered a frontier market. But, I mean, you've been there. It's going to be. It's going to be a minute. Yeah. yeah. Give me a while before they're emerging yeah. and then develop. So just kind of the phase of the country where they are in terms of rule of law, uh, uh, their business environments, and the companies that come out of those countries. Okay. So the progression is frontier, emerging, developed. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's kind of where you get your international um, stocks from. Okay, perfect. Well, let's make the case. Are you for or against owning these international stocks. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, So we we have you know, and people say, well, and we should uh, add another term here. So there's you mentioned global. Mm-hmm. Uh, so international. If you hear international investing or you own an international fund, you own everything outside of the U.S. borders. Yeah. Uh, if you hear a global fund, it includes the U.S. So if you own a global fund, you probably have a 30 or 40% allocation to the U.S. Yeah. If you own an international fund, you shouldn't have any U.S. exposure. Okay. Uh, and there's some great companies, you know, Nestle, Toyota, Sony, um, Allianz, Diageo. Um, so in, to answer your question, you, you know, if you look back the last 10 years, International investments have been horrible. Emerging mm-hmm. markets have had a negative return, or you know, less than two percent, uh, single digits across the board, and the U.S. market has just crushed yeah. international investing. But if we go back, uh, I'm using data from dimensional funds. So 1970 is when it when it starts. Uh, so from 1970 to 2000, <clears throat> 2007, 37 years, international markets uh, crushed. The U.S. markets. Wow, for thirty-seven years. Thirty-seven years. So the EFA, which is the Develop Index, yeah. uh, averaged about eleven and a half percent. International small caps averaged over seventeen percent mm. per year, and our market uh, averaged eleven percent. Great returns, but you could have made a lot more money investing mm. internationally. And the risk level is almost identical. Interesting. Um, but from two thousand and eight. To today, uh, our market has crushed international markets. So over the last 15 years, 
uh, our the S and P five hundred is averaged about nine uh, percent. Uh, the EFA only two point six percent, and international small caps about four and a half percent. So our market, you know, two to three times the returns of what international. So if you're new to investing, or you know, you've been investing for the last uh, fifteen years, like why would I want to own international? And you know, things change, mm. you know, and, uh, uh, and and this year. Uh, and actually, going back to probably June or July of last year, international stocks are are significantly outperforming U.S. stocks this yeah, year. Absolutely. So I guess the question that is proposed from that data: Should we just wait another seventeen years and then switch? <laughs> <laughs> no. But um, the real question: So we had the returns from nineteen seventy to two thousand seven. There were better returns on the international side, but the United States stocks seem to be. Not too far split. Yeah. However, in this kind of run, we see that the United States stocks are just completely just demolishing the uh, international stocks. So there's yeah. a thought that like, okay, they might have won, but not by a wide margin. Where right now, they're winning by a wide margin. So kind of yeah. how do you reconcile that? Do you think they're maybe going to reverse to the means per se in the next 15 years? You know, it could, but... You know, when you think of great companies, like everybody in the world probably uses Microsoft mm-hmm. somewhere, right? Uh, everybody in the world probably has an iPhone. Yep. People use Google worldwide yep. and probably shop at Amazon. But every creamer I've seen is Nestle. <laughs> well, yes. So as you're, you're putting creamer into yeah. your coffee, buying from Amazon. But... Um, we, we, as a country, have a home bias, obviously, yeah. uh, to to uh, U.S. stocks, but we don't shop on a lot of international sites. Mm, like we we don't have much international components other than chips, maybe, but uh, computer chips, yeah, not potato <laughs> chips. Uh, well, even there, right? People drink Coke and Pepsi. Mm. Uh, we don't drink a lot of. Uh, I guess Topo Chico, I guess. I don't know. But, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm international and I'm getting to, to answer your question. But um, but if you look at a company in the U.S., some of them have more international revenue than U.S. revenue, even though they're based in the U.S. So why not just buy U.S.-based companies that have international exposure? And, and, and you could. But uh, it goes back to diversification. Again, yeah. uh, international stocks – uh, are are having a great run right now and outperforming U.S. stocks, and and we usually allocate, you know, fifteen to twenty yeah. percent to international holdings. So it's not a tremendous amount, but markets are constantly changing, and and uh, I think you need to have uh, international. Plus, people are concerned now about the dollar, mm-hmm. right? Because China's making all these arrangements with other countries. And a weaker dollar uh, benefits international investments because it's cheaper for us to buy them, right? Yeah. So, um, but it's it's a tough sell on the international side relative to U.S. But I think you make a great point when you're talking about diversification. We're not over here advocating have 60% of your allocation be international stocks or 70. It's really going to be just the name of the game of diversification. And what... (laughs) 
what stinks about diversification is you're basically shooting to not be the biggest loser. That's that's really your goal. And, and you always, <laughs> if if you have a diversified portfolio, you always have to apologize for something <laughs> exactly. being down, right? Like, why do we own this? Yeah. Um, and so, well, talk you you did yeah. some research on the lost decade. Um, yeah, two thousand to two thousand and ten. Exactly. Like? I mean, that's when we talk about finance. The two thousands get brought up pretty much every single time because we had the dot com crash, then you had the great financial crisis within the span of eight years of one another. And what was crazy about that is if you just were invested in the S and P during that time, you were down one point one percent. You started in two thousand, you ended in two thousand and ten. You were down. You, However, lost, you lost money for 10 you years. You lost money for 10 years. And we always talk about the S&P, annualized return 10%, 10%, 10%. Yeah. But you take a small sample size, a snapshot, you actually lost money during that time. Now, if you were in the EFA index, as you mentioned, it was 33.91%. Hmm. Now, that's a pretty, that's a much wider margin than yeah. what we're talking about in that. And even if you're like, okay, well, Sp- Spencer and Bill, we talked about indexes or indices last time. What about the, the QQQs? We haven't talked about NASDAQ or anything of that nature. What did that do during that time? And even the NASDAQ or the Qs, QQQ, which indexes the NASDAQ, that was only up 19.56%. So still, international stocks performed much greater, about 13% more mm-hmm. than even the NASDAQ, which is supposed to be this high runner, high volume and things of that nature. Which just goes to show you, it's like... You, if we knew and we're able to time the market successfully, oh yeah, we'd have international exactly where we needed to, to be. But I, I think the real case for international is, I don't think there's a case to go against United States stocks no. to say, but it's just all in the name of diversification. And so if you were able to have a little bit diversified portfolio during 2000, 2010, you didn't lose all that 1.1%. You actually were able to get some some tailwinds from your international stocks. And we don't know if that's going to happen for the next 10 years, 20 years. We just, we don't no, know. Knows. And, and my guess is that uh, if you look at fund flows, mm-hmm. money going in, money going out of funds during that decade, a lot of people said, hey, why don't we have more international? It's outperforming the U.S. Yeah. Let's put more money there. And then international goes on a losing battle. It's interesting. Uh over the last 30 years, looking at uh, best and worst returns. Mm. So uh, developed markets, the EFA and the and the S&P 500, uh, their upside was, uh, their best year was uh, 58% in 2003 for the EFA. Wow. And the S&P 500 was 2021 up uh, 56% from, from March 20. To March 2021 is up 56%. But uh, emerging markets in 2009, the recovery was up 92%. And international small caps 2003 were up 83%. But the losses, the downside, the worst year that these four indices ever had, it's similar. It ranged from about uh, a downside of 43% to 56%. So so if you time it right, uh, and international stocks small caps and emerging markets take off, you can make significant money. Mm. And again, over time, the risk levels are, are very similar. Uh, and like you said, we're, we're not advocating uh, all in one or the other, uh, but it, 
you know, allocating again, 15 to 20% of your portfolio to international stocks, uh, we think makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think we've made a good case for that. Um, One thing I want to get your thoughts on uh, and a tactical change is when do you start alienating or excluding countries? Because I know we made a tactical position or tactical change from our positions to go to a fund that has that doesn't add excludes China. Yeah. So like what goes into that thought process and how do you make that decision? Uh, well, that starts at the top, you know, and it goes back to that rule of law and uh, that government. And if that gov- government's not pro-business, uh, there's no reason to own that country. Like we would never own Venezuela, mm. Iraq, Russia, uh it's a rule of law is really a big, big factor in that. And uh, we should add, you know, the U.S. market is rarely the best performing market in the world. Yeah, It's always an international company more often than not. And, you know, another case for, for buying international stocks is they make up about 50% of the market cap mm. of the global market. Yeah. So if you say, I don't want to own international companies, you're excluding half the world. And there's some pretty good companies outside of the U.S. borders. Uh, but it goes back to, to rule of law, I would say. And, you know, there's a lot of great companies in China, but the government says, hey, you can't make a profit this year. Yeah. Or, you know, what they're doing to Alibaba, you know, split it up into six companies mm-hmm. or you got to donate money to other companies that aren't as profitable or whatnot. Anytime a government can come in, and I don't. I guess the U.S. can do it too, but uh, <laughs> uh, and, and they try to do it at, at some level. But uh, you know, dictatorships are, are very challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, not long after we made that change, uh, you know, we got rid of the Chinese holdings. Russia invaded yeah, uh, Ukraine. Ukraine, so people called. I know we got out of China, but do we own anything in <laughs> Russia? And and we we don't. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you've you've got to be aware of what those countries are are doing and. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, in Israel, there's a lot of great companies. And uh, in, in, in some of the uh, European countries are fantastic to invest in. But uh, like trying to find the right stock, trying to find the right country, yeah. uh, you know, good luck with that. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's just that thinking like, because you just mentioned Russia and China. We don't want any part of well in the emerging market. That's half of the bricks. <laughs> it's half of the bricks. It, it's yeah. that question of when investing internationally, you kind of get a little bit more difficult because yeah. you have to find out, like you said, not even the company but also the country, and that's why indexing is extremely important and and doing those emerging markets. And I'm sure it's going to even get more and more complex and more and more selective when it yeah. comes to the Russia conflict and then the China um, difficulties, but. Okay. You know, one, one question we get asked is, you know, if we're having international exposure, mm-hmm. what about hedging currencies? That's true. Uh, but when you want a globally diversified portfolio, thousands of companies, uh, typically the currencies kind of balance out, meaning yeah. there's no reason to hedge a portfolio in a, in a diversified portfolio. If we were just going one country at a time, mm-hmm. like if we were going to, only invest in the Netherlands, we'd probably do some hedging there. Yeah. But in a global portfolio, uh, 
you don't really need to hedge currencies as an additional investment strategy. Yeah, that may, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Hedging currencies is, is a headache in, its, in itself. So uh, perfect. Anything you want to finish with kind of this international investing, international thoughts? Uh, I would say if you travel internationally, you would probably be more inclined to invest internationally because you see those cultures, you learn from them, they're vibrant and, and there's a lot going on. Um, but again, it goes back to that diversified portfolio and international stocks play a, a huge component in that. And again, it's a short run, but since the fourth quarter of last year, international stocks are doing well, giving a boost to uh, our portfolios along with bonds. You know, two sectors that were, were anchors yep. the last couple of years are, are now, you know, uh, provide a little bit of fuel to the accounts because mm. you never know you when, never where, know. why, Markets again, turn. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. The first side of portfolio. That's what it's all about. Um, well, thank you for that. So let's transition to our intriguing issue. Uh, mine is all about Google. I think we should just make this segment like tech something. You know? <laughs> yeah. I feel like all of our intriguing issues. But Google on Wednesday announced its supercomputer and, and even more so this this chip that is um, it is uh, this tensor processing chip. The TPV, they call it. And it says that it's 1 to 2 to 1.7 times faster with about 1.3 to 1.9% less energy use than NVIDIA's chip. Mm. And so it's this idea that, and it, this is the AI supercomputer. So Google's had a flop a couple times in AI, and now they're doubling down and saying, we really need to make sure our stuff's together. Yeah, And we not only want to bolster our product, but we want to kind of smear NVIDIA's product as well. And it's just this thought process of where is this AI taking us? Um, so looking at the return from NVIDIA, year to date, NVIDIA is up 81%. Yes. And then Google is only up 18%. Yes. Uh, that's nothing to sneeze at. But no. especially in this week, Google has kind of taken off on NVIDIA has taken a backseat because investors are worried. And so as this idea is, What's going to happen when all these tech companies, your Alphabets, your Apples, your Microsofts, is NVIDIA going to get kind of pushed out or while these other companies create their own chips and their own supercomputer and their own AI processing? Yeah. Or is NVIDIA a staple that's here to stay? Uh, well, you didn't mention Intel. I'd probably yeah. be more worried about Oof. Intel because they're not in that AI mm -hmm. arena as far as I know. Uh, it seems like they're fight, fighting the last last battle. Uh, no, I don't think NVIDIA is going away. Uh, but as more companies make their own chips, like Apple and, and Google, they're like, well, we don't need you anymore. And NVIDIA's valuation is very rich. Yes. And so if you have another competitor that could do it faster and cheaper, well, why would you pay a premium for NVIDIA? And actually, Google is one of the cheaper yep. tech stocks right now because, you know, they had that demonstration, stock went down. And, uh, but if you go back and look at other AI original rollouts, they weren't good either. No. Uh, it's kind of like when uh, Elon Musk threw that 
rock or whatever at the truck window and it broke. I have a conspiracy. I think he did that on purpose. I, you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> Everything he does is calculated. Um, but no, I, I don't. I, I think from a stock price, I'd be worried about NVIDIA, mm. but not not the, the company. company. Yeah. But I, I would agree. not. I would not. You know, a lot of people got rid of Google after that, but Google's a beast. Yeah, they've they got, probably Googled how to get rid of Google on Google. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I, I would not discount, but I, I'd be more worried probably in this category about Intel, Intel yeah. than, than the others because of where they're going uh, more so than like AMD and NVIDIA. Uh, and then Apple, you know, the M1 chip is rocket fast and... And AI uh, is the future, and if Google is going to be right there, and it's a cheap stock, I, I would not, I would not uh, turn my back on yeah, Google. Yeah, from every single thing, it seems like it's they're they're rocking and rolling with this chip, and so we'll see. But kind of, what's your intriguing issue? Well, it, it's the pitch count in baseball. Oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah, now that uh, baseball season is in full swing, but. The games are faster, about 20, min- 20 minutes faster than last year. I think there was a game a couple nights ago that was like two hours on the dot, uh, which is unheard of. But you know, it's that microwave culture. You know, we want it faster. We want it now. Get to the end. Um, and I get it. But I when I go to a game, I just kind of like the slowness of it, get away from everything. Um, the pitch count just seems like a little hustle and bustle and move faster, get it done, on to the next one. And uh, I don't know. And if you're a baseball purist, uh, oh. you, you hate the pitch count. Yeah, I have no understanding on why they do it, unless this is a bridge to making the games even shorter. Because uh, if you're trying to attract younger microwave generation, 20 minutes isn't, isn't going to do it for you. <laughs> baseball not is not the sport for a microwave generation. So I, yeah. I think it's just upsetting the purist and the people that don't care will continue not to care. <laughs> it's not going to be like, I don't watch baseball. And it's not saying, oh, man, 30 minutes. What am I going to do with that extra 30 minutes? Right? Yeah. Like, I'm just not going to watch it. So or you're not going to say, hey, I want to watch it because it's 20 minutes faster. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, and this is uh, hearsay. My dad's a baseball enthusiast. Um but take it to six innings. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, if you're concerned about the time, like literally, you know, six inning game, you're in now in an hour. Um, but that'll never happen. Yeah. And, and people are probably like screaming at me right now. But uh, I mean, if you're going to tweak it, tweak it. I I will always continue to say that football has had this ability to have every single game matter extensively. Yeah. And that's why the viewership is up so much. And that is why they get so many ticket sales. Yeah. Baseball, basketball, hockey's okay. But baseball and basketball just need to just 30 games, 20 games, and just go all out and sell as much tickets as they can. Because you look at a baseball field or you look at an NBA court today, maybe a fourth of it's full on an NBA yeah. given game. So Well, the Oakland A's... Their attendance is like anemic. Uh, well, if you look at the World Baseball Classic, that was awesome. Yeah. And Miami Stadium sold out. Every, and I don't think Miami's ever sold out. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, so, uh, 
Yeah, gosh, if you shorten the season, went the six innings, man, the game would take off. Oh, there it is. We're not commissioners, but hey, no. you have our numbers. <laughs> All right. Anything you want to leave our listeners with, Bill? Again, it goes back to diversifying your portfolio um, and, and keep an eye on those international audience. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate your expertise, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, parrotwealth.com, where you can learn more about everything we have to offer at Parrot Wealth Management. That's our view from the perch. See y'all next week.